the Monaco Grand Prix is back. Can Max Verstappen kickstart his championship campaign with a win at the most famous race of them all? Hello and welcome to another F1 Strategy Report recap. My name is Michael Laminato and this is a preview of the 2021 Monaco Grand Prix. For Heeltread.com, socks inspired by iconic cars. Use the code word STRATEGY for 10% off. The 2019 Grand Prix should have been a Mercedes cruise from pole to flag, with Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas starting on the front row. But their race was put under threat at the first pit stop. The frontrunners all came in early, Hamilton, Bottas and Verstappen. But Red Bull Racing was so quick that Verstappen came out alongside Bottas and bumped him into the wall, demoting the fin down the order and earning Verstappen a 5 second penalty. But more concerning for Mercedes was that it had given Hamilton the medium tyre while Verstappen was on the hard. The medium was rated to go just 50 laps, he'd need them for 66. Hamilton laboured in the cockpit, his tyres self-destructing while Verstappen was doubling and redoubling the pressure. But Hamilton's defence was centimetre perfect, and he ground out a hard-earned win. I caught up post-race with GP Racing Executive Editor Stuart Codling. I mean, we're going to have to address this at some point this year, when people might start to, rather than look at Mercedes' domination as being boring or repetitive, this season in particular, looking on it as the fact that this team is doing such a good high-level job, is this really the last box they kind of had to tick in this long run of championship-winning seasons, winning the Monaco Grand Prix fairly comfortably, even if strategy made it more difficult than it should have been, uh, to say that well, this is the, the ultimate version of Mercedes, if you like? Yeah, I think you can look at that across a whole range of sports. You see teams, particularly team sports, I think, where teams attain such a high level of of operational excellence that even when they're not kind of firing on all cylinders as it were they're, they're able to pick it up now you you see it in rugby i'm about to uh produce an english rugby reference which may not <laughs> resonate with all your listeners but uh uh saracens for instance and exeter the the two great forces of english rugby are, are teams that have have different philosophies. Saracens have an awful lot of uh, internationals in in blatant uh, defiance of the salary cap. Exeter <laughs> uh, have uh, pick up pick unknowns and then make them stars. But they they are teams that are just phenomenal because they are so strong. And even when they make mistakes, someone's able to pick it up and and, and do something with it. And you saw that this weekend where Mercedes arguably got Lewis Hamilton's race strategy horrendously wrong. Mm. And yet he was somehow able to parlay that in, into, into victory uh, under siege, as you say, maybe he decided that he would um, follow the, the great example of someone else who was once under siege, Steven Seagal. <laughs> But interestingly enough, it was actually Charles Leclerc who decided this race, despite not even finishing it, despite not even getting past, uh, getting even to the 20 lap mark. Uh, he attempted valiantly to recover to somewhere. I think Max Verstappen got to ninth this time last year after not qualifying at all due to his FP3 crash. So maybe that was his target. Uh, and he came undone at Raskas after pulling a really good move, actually, on um, Romain Grosjean. He couldn't manage it against Nico Hulkenberg, picked up a puncture was speeding way too quickly back to the pit lane for that kind of damage, destroyed his car, but spilt a whole bunch of debris and rubber all over the circuit, triggering a safety car. Yeah, it was it was quite an extraordinary moment, as you say. And I suppose it, you know, if we drill down into what Charles did wrong, I think he got impatient behind Grosjean. And then once he did that move into Raskas, 
He then came up behind Hulkenberg, who um, was aware of what he'd done to Grosjean and didn't leave as much room. And Charles tried to do the same thing and ended up in that spin. So that screwed Hulkenberg's race because he got a puncture. He pitted under green flag conditions, so he went to the back. Uh, and also the, the front runners decided it was their time to go. Now, arguably, it was the right time to go for Lewis because he'd been complaining that his tyres were dead. Now, that put Mercedes in a quandary because those cars were running nose to tail. So what Bottas did was slow the cars down behind him so he didn't have to double stack behind Lewis in the pit lane, which he did very well. The trouble is that uh, Red Bull then serviced Max Verstappen just slightly quicker and, and Max got out a little bit ahead and nosed straight sort of... He was sort of half ahead of Valtteri. Now, he says he didn't see Bottas and... I don't know, we've got to take him at his word. But he certainly hit Bottas hard enough for Bottas to crack a wheel rim against the pit wall. So that was him gone. He had to make another pit stop, which dropped him to to fourth in that little battle. There was also a little knock-on effect for Max because he had activated his start torque map uh, when he got into the pit lane, as you do, because it reduces the wheel spin you get away, you, you have from the getaway. But then in the sort of the confusion that, oh, I've hit someone, what's happening? He forgot to switch it back into the, the normal race talk mode. And then because you're only allowed to adjust that in the pit lane, he was locked into that start talk mapping for the rest of the race. So he had this horrendous turbo lag and a sort of bucking bronco effect. So it was very tricky for him. So your, your net result of this phase among the front runners is Lewis keeps his lead. Max gets second, you've got Vettel third on the road, Bottas fourth, and now a a sort of a potential penalty hanging over the head of of Max for the unsafe relief release, which he got, which is a five second penalty, which he would then have to serve either on his next pet pit stop or it would be put onto his time at the end of the race. So that's something for him to consider. The second part of this pit stop phase was that there was a divergence of, of options on tyres. It seemed obvious to Mercedes, I suppose, that they should go for the medium tyres. Perhaps it was because there was this threat of rain in the air. There, there always seems to be a threat of rain in the air in Monaco and it never arrives. So maybe we should start discounting that to a certain degree. But also the tyre warm-up on the restart, if anyone behind them had opted for the mediums and they're on the hards, could have been compromising. But Vettel and Verstappen opted for hards, and Bottas at his second stop also switched to the hards. So, in effect, Hamilton was the only runner on the medium tyre. Coupled with the fact that Verstappen, of course, not only wanted to win this Grand Prix, but needed to build a five-second buffer uh, to negate that five-second penalty from the, the pit stop crash or collision with Valtteri Bottas, created this really interesting uh, dynamic between Hamilton and Verstappen in the battle for the lead both with kind of uh, different motivations. But in the end, as we heard from Lewis Hamilton's radio calls, he was certainly the man suffering a great deal more uh, on tyres that he was adamant wasn't going to make it to the end of the race. Yeah, as you say, as with any Monaco Grand Prix, the, the weather watchers are out in force <laughs> looking at the radar. And before the race, people were coming up to me and saying, yeah, yeah, rain at four, rain at four, <laughs> for sure. And I was thinking, well, you know, Great. I'd, I'd love to have, you know, with, with, with my garden, I'd love to have this level of accuracy. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to go out on my bicycle on the weekends. I'd love to know when the rain arrives so that I can hide in a tunnel or something at the appropriate moment. But, you know, as Yoda would say, so certain are you. But um, 
as you say, there was this divergence of of tire strategies. Um, I suppose for, to some extent, medium was maybe the right answer at the time. With Bottas, obviously his mediums, he couldn't use them because he'd cracked a rim. So the the hards were the only ones he went on to. Now, for the other drivers, I think hards were a gamble because Verstappen certainly had not completed a single lap on hard mm. tyres that weekend until that point. He only had one set. Not only that, he hadn't even done a lap on full tanks in practice because they'd had a few problems here and there. So really, it, it, it was kind of asking a lot of him as well and Vettel, as well as asking a fair bit of Hamilton to keep those tyres alive. But of course, the, the problem for Mercedes then is that their rivals have committed themselves to not making a further pit stop. That means Lewis himself can't make another pit stop without losing track position. So he had to keep those tyres alive. And that's why we heard him right from the start of that stint, having panicky radio messages saying, are we doing the right thing? Uh, and also he was driving really, really slowly, sort of the, the one minute 18s, which is seven seconds a lap off the pace they were doing in practice. And the effect of that was to concertina the, the whole pack and you had people like George Russell down mm. at the back in the Williams. His engineers were telling him, we, we could be on for sixth place <laughs> here because we were really close. So it, it, it really was a kind of properly Monaco casino style roulette. It was obvious that Hamilton's tyres would be in a very poor state by the end of this race. Not simply because he was calling it out. But it's always interesting when you hear engineers reply back that everything is going to be absolutely fine as if they've got something planned that's going to save the day. There's so much mind management involved in Monaco, which I think is really part of the attraction of it. It's not quite at the same level as other circuits. How much was this really down to Lewis Hamilton being the kind of driver who can execute a game where the pressure is so high, given the state of the tyres, the driver behind him so quick, and still deliver at what was really a faultless drive? Yeah, sometimes when Lewis is coming over the radio sounding panicky and, and edgy, you kind of think, is is it a case of the gentleman doth protest too much? Because Bono is always ice cool. He's sort of, you know, if, if, if I'm ever on an aeroplane in trouble, I want the captain to sound as, as relaxed as Pete Bonington does when he's dispensing bad news to Lewis Hamilton or, or telling him that he's, he's going to have to do something difficult. But I suppose maybe that's, that's the relationship they need to have. And, and Lewis seems to respond at his best when he's got this cool, calm customer uh, on the pit wall saying, it's all right, you can do it. And then obviously Lewis pushed back a little bit harder. So they escalated and they got a different cool, calm, collected <laughs> voice, James Vowles, the chief strategist, to say, uh, we believe in you, you can do this. And, and blimey, he only went and did it. And, you know, you watch the race, you can see the state his front tyres were in. They really were terrible. He was understeering everywhere. But the the, the fortunate thing for Lewis was that his rear tyres were okay. So he was perfectly okay under traction for the really, really important parts of the lap where you do defensive driving. That is onto the start finish straight and also out of Portier where you go through the tunnel, you've got that braking zone at the end for the chicane. So he was just able to hook up enough traction to be able to you know, make enough of a meaningful gap to Verstappen for Max not to be able to attack him, except just that once where he had a go and they had a, a tiny bit of the touch and both drivers afterwards said, well, you know, no harm, no foul. F1's first return to Monaco since the start of the pandemic offers Red Bull Racing a chance to stem the flow of three losses to Mercedes in four races and win some momentum in this title fight. 
The Austrian back team has always gone well here with a chassis traditionally suited to the super slow speed circuit. And if it has an advantage over Mercedes in this year's tight contest, it is in slow speed corners. Its single lap pace will also stand it in good stead in Monte Carlo, where pole is half the battle for victory. Starting at the head of the field would virtually eliminate the RB16B's tyre wear woes by allowing Verstappen or Sergio Perez to dictate the pace of the race. A reduced race speed also makes the undercut more difficult to pull off. Dropping into the slower midfield early can have a devastating effect on a driver's overall race time given overtaking is almost impossible here. Despite the softest Pirelli tyres on offer, the Monaco Grand Prix is usually a one-stop race given the low speeds and smooth street track. But the pit stop window is wide. Choosing the timing is all about finding that clear air on track. So can Red Bull Racing get its season back on track? I'll be back next week to debrief all the action. Until then, you can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter for our regular pre-race strategy guides. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork. And our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Aminato, and I'll catch you next week to review the Monaco Grand Prix.